Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. Really excited for my next guest, Sean Filer, Chief Investment Officer of Equinox Partners. Sean, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, Sean. You work in areas that the type of companies you invest in, I think, really are at the the crux of of what's going on uh, just in the, in the macro economy, and it, they're also areas that the layperson doesn't really have access to by sort of you know the mainstream uh, financial news. So, just let the audience know what are the two areas, uh, you know, what are the two types of companies that you invest in typically, and also where they're located. So we're, we're contrarian investors, value investors, and so that's usually pushed us off the beaten path. Uh, for much of the last two decades, we've been in gold mining and uh, oil and gas companies. And a lot of those assets, so in the EMP space, a lot of those assets are in Canada, uh, but in gold mining, a lot of those assets are in emerging market and frontier countries. Okay, and I, I want to draw a distinction here because you know the the reason there um, you know there are money managers is to generate alpha relative to some benchmark, and you know if there's a fund that's investing in technology, let's say, there maybe their benchmark is the Nasdaq 100, and people they may have done well because the, the fund manager generated a few points of alpha, but you know you they also did well by just allocating passively to the Nasdaq 100. The type of sectors that you deal with, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, could not be more different. They are by definition a stock picker's market because if you just look at the index indices, whether it's GDX or GDXJ, the junior gold miners, or the exploration ETFs for oil, they've had a very, very bad past decade. Is that correct? So the the gold mining companies in particular, it's been a rough decade. The same thing's true uh, with the EMP companies. Um, there's been a lot of volatility within that last decade, but on average, obviously much worse than common stocks, the S&P or the NASDAQ for sure. Um, yeah, and there is a lot of dispersion within that space. So certainly within like the junior mining sector, you're talking about a real range in terms of the quality of the assets, in terms of the quality of the governance. And so, yeah, there's a lot of value to be added by stock picking. Mm-hmm. And Sean, how much do you follow macro? I know a lot of stock pickers, they like to focus on balance sheets, uh, the company's the profitability. They don't really focus on the macro, the Fed. Uh, what about you? So if you're doing EM and, and frontier market investing, you're not ignoring macro kind of by definition. And so one of the formative experiences in my career was the Asia crisis in the late 90s and then the Russia crisis in 98. So in the case of Indonesia, if you were down at the lows, 99% dollar terms, a lot of that was macro, not company specific driven. And so there was really never a any rational participants in these markets that thought you could ignore the macro. And it's just the reality of investing in 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 most of the world, uh, certainly outside of developed markets. I think now we're finding that it's going to be maybe as relevant in developed markets, and uh, but that's not a surprise, uh, certainly to us. Yes. So in that scenario, the Asian financial crisis, the currencies, the Asian currencies weakened tremendously against the dollar. So in, in dollar terms, investors lost a tremendous amount of capital. Uh, how how do you see those issues playing out today with currencies? Uh, for most of the assets that we have in emerging markets, we're talking about gold and silver revenues. In some cases, we have EMP companies there. But then again, we're talking about dollar revenues. And so weaker currencies uh, are largely offset by inflation in a lot of these geographies. And so it's something you have to, to watch and you watch from a timing perspective. Um, it's been an opportunity recently because a lot of the EM currencies have been weak to create better margins uh, in the companies we're invested in there. Um, but I'd say it's it's really country specific uh, in terms of uh, kind of the analysis we're doing. Okay, that's really interesting. That dollars, you know, the petrodollar system, there uh, oil is sold in dollars, but the input cost if it's in an emerging market is in that emerging market currency. So if that emerging market currency weakens, the input costs go down in dollar terms, but the output, what you're paid in dollars stays the same. So weakening weakening currencies can actually be good for uh, investing. Is that why here or no? Yeah. So so like in the case of Turkey, Turkey would be a good example where the layer has been very weak and there were not invested in EMP, but in mining companies, um, some assets in Turkey. So a lot of what you're gaining, though, in terms of the currency depreciation is being offset by very high rates of inflation. 
Um, so you can get a temporary benefit in terms of the operating cost of the mine, usually much uh, less of a benefit in terms of the capital cost of the mine. Uh, but then you have a lot of volatility as you're catching up with that depreciation, right, in terms of the inflation that's catching up with that depreciation. So um, Brazil would be a good example of a currency that's rallied recently. So if you were investing on the basis of uh, forever weaker real, your margins could get squeezed pretty quickly when it goes against you. So it's just something that's it's um, it's part of investing in these markets. Mm. And how to the Federal Reserve right now is tightening monetary policy. It's projected to raise the Fed funds interest rate to as high as you know over three percent. Trillions of its balance sheet is expected to roll roll off its balance sheet. How have prior what do you what have you learned from prior Federal Reserve uh, hiking cycles or should I say tightening cycles? Maybe we can take 2018, the famous Powell pivot, as well as perhaps 2014, which didn't involve, I don't think, any hiking at all, but merely the taper, I know, caused a lot of distress in emerging markets and commodities and, in particular, currencies. Yeah, so the uh, the old adage was that, you know, when we get a, a cold here in the United States, EM gets pneumonia, um, you will have certain countries get overextended in terms of their balance sheets and then to the extent that they can't really raise the dollars they need to uh, pay their debt, you could, you know, you'll have some uh, a lot of stress and potential defaults. So right now, uh, you know, Ghana's got a problem, Egypt's got a problem. Um, there's a number of emerging market countries that are kind of on that, you know, north of 70, 80% debt to GDP line uh, where they don't have a lot of a lot of wiggle room. And so then you have a couple a couple problems. But for us, I think the biggest problem is going to be do you have a change in terms of tax treatment of your local local assets in those countries? Um when the government goes through that kind of financial stress. So in Ghana, you're seeing that right now. So they just put an enormous new tax on their largest mobile money telecom company in an effort to try to offset the budgetary pressures that they're they're facing. Um, some mines there will have fiscal stability agreements, which kind of renegotiation of would be equivalent to a sovereign default, and others don't, where you're gonna be subject to higher taxation as that country goes through uh, rough point in their domestic fiscal cycle. And the debts that these emerging markets countries have, how much of it typically is in the home country where they can just print money and pay it off versus it's in the dollar and they have to print money that will weaken against the dollar? Yeah, and it's sort of this, it's, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, so it's a mix and it's country by country. Um, uh, as you say, right, the, the, the higher the fraction of domestic debt, the uh, more soluble their problem is in terms of running the printing press. Uh, the rates on that debt though then tend to be higher. Uh, so you tend to get a combination of um, negative real rates as these countries get more stressed in financial repression to trap the capital. So you have a number of these countries will no longer have freely convertible capital accounts. Uh, so Ghana and Nigeria are good examples of that. Uh, so there's a lot of games they tend to play the more stressed they get. Um, but this is part of the reason why assets in these countries are, I think, mispriced. They're not kind of on the list of most people's uh, list of things most people want to own. Um, I would say the Francophone West Africa, uh, where, where we have a number of gold investments, has been a really um, a pleasant place to invest from a currency and inflation perspective because they've tied their currency, the CIFA, to the euro. And that peg has held for a number of years. And uh, so you've had uh, free convertibility and moderate rates of inflation uh, in Francophone West Africa. That's kind of atypical of what you've seen in most frontier markets. How big of a threat do you think mon monetary tightening is to emerging markets? Not the, not necessarily the specific type of companies that you invest in, of you know mining companies in West Africa, but just like emerging emerging markets such as EEM, that that ETF, let's say, really broad based. Uh, yeah, so the cycle can be rough, I think. So uh, starting back to your original premise, which is that EM has really underperformed uh, developed markets for a decade. So you're talking about a starting point that's very dissimilar to, say, what you had at the start of the Asia crisis, right, where you had a lot of froth and um, exuberant capital flows into, uh, into emerging markets. So you're starting at a low point. That's not to say that it can't get worse. I would say that the experience is going to be varied, right? You're going to have some countries that are going to have more of a problem, other countries that have been more responsible. 
Um, and then the composition of those countries' GDP and their export base is also going to have a real effect in terms of how they experience this crisis. Um, so something like Peru, you would say, um, low debt to GDP, responsible monetary policy, uh, well-capitalized banking system, um, and then commodity-based, uh, commodity-heavy exports, especially uh, copper that have done very well recently, all that you know you think would bode very well for Peruvian macro, then they have an election and elect a you know an avowed communist, and you've got another problem. So the 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 vagaries of investing in these markets, that's just the nature of 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 frontier and emerging market investing. I know sort of a textbook 101 emerging market crisis is let's say the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates, it sucks capital from all around the globe to the the dollar dollar based uh, right. higher rates. And that therefore, central banks of emerging market countries, they see a capital outflow, they have a choice to either devalue the currency or to deflate. So either raise rates and uh, cause recession, uh, perhaps you slow down the economy to, to keep capital back, or just let the currency depreciate. And I guess option door number three is capital controls. And as you alluded, um, perhaps Ghana, you said, had them as well. Um, that would be, of course, a, you know, more government, not, not central banks. But... Uh, what sort of uh, what sort of solutions are emerging market central banks choosing now? I know, for example, like Brazil, they've hiked interest rates a lot. But is are a lot of emerging market following the example of Brazil, or are some not you know central banks not hiking rates in response? Yeah, you're seeing rate increases in 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 general, and then you're seeing also a lot of the emerging market economies are much less leveraged than say the developed world economies or the U.S. economy. So there's a lot more space to raise rates without breaking things. Uh, real rates in a number of these economies are still negative. So even if you're uh, taking rates up, like let's say in the case of Turkey, you can take rates up uh, quite a bit before you'd get to anything approaching a, a, a real uh, positive real rate if inflation's running at, I don't know, call it 50%, something like that. Um, I think a lot of these currencies long-term, it's not clear that there's a real constituency to own them other than people that want to, foreigners that want to, uh, invest in businesses in those countries? Do people really want the, uh, the lira exposure absent a very high you know, real rate or a trade? The answer is probably not unless they actually live there. So I think that's a kind of a perennial flashpoint for a lot of these markets. And then a lot of the central banks are managing in ways that are um, political. I mean, our central bank is political here, but their central banks are even, in the case of Turkey, would be a poster child for uh, what has historically been a highly politicized central bank. And how are you weighing the risks at this current juncture? Because a lot of analysts focusing on the American economy are very worried that the Federal Reserve will have to essentially cause a recession, uh, tighten to the point that something breaks in order to to break inflation. Is that a problem for emerging markets? Could it actually be good? Because you know, for the first time in a very long time, America, U.S. inflation is actually higher than the rest of the world. How are you sort of thinking about this? Yeah, I think they have a problem is I don't think they're going to be able to get inflation under control without causing a recession. I think if you cause a recession and a big correction in financial asset prices, given the debt to GDP in the United States, it's not clear that that then puts you on a sustainable path unless you have, you know, meaningfully, uh, you know, really high uh, nominal GDP growth in the United States, um, because there's not an appetite to say cut spending and reduce reduce deficits into recession here in the United States. So I think they're uh, really painted themselves into a corner. Um, and so I think we'll see something similar to what we saw in, in 2018 when Powell tried to normalize um, and then had to back off. Uh, we're down now 20 plus percent in the NASDAQ uh, year to date at 25 percent and 18 uh, percent in the S&P. So um, it seems like they're very much on this kind of path that Bill Dudley laid out in terms of correcting asset prices to to drive a correction, a recession in the U.S. economy. Uh, but I don't think they'll really have the appetite to get anything close to meaningfully positive real rates, because I think the math just doesn't work. And then you overlay that on that kind of the reduced appetite for foreigners to buy dollars, right, in terms of with the, the dollar index now 104, something like that, uh, on a trade-weighted basis, um, the the arbitrage doesn't work any longer for the Japanese, and it's no longer clear that, given the expropriation of Russia's reserves, that the Chinese and other countries that are going to have some potential conflict with the United States are going to want to own dollars in the same size that they would have historically. And so I think as you're starting to 
think through who's going to plug that trillion dollar gap if the Fed's not going to do it, you know, uh, you can get to a conclusion that maybe rates here in the United States have to be higher and the dollar has to be weaker. And then that net, on a net basis would be good for EM. Right. I just want to make clear, you said people don't want to buy dollars and yet the dollar is high. I, let me explain that to the audience is, is that people don't want to buy treasury bonds. You know, Japanese investors, when they buy a tre- tre- treasury bond, they usually have to hedge that uh, foreign exchange risk. And because the DXY has exploded higher, because the yen has collapsed, those hedging costs are now higher. So right. that that will decrease foreign investors' appetite for treasuries, not increase. And actually, we've we've seen you know something like sixty billion dollars of outflows of Japanese investors dumping U.S. Treasury bonds. Sean, where do you stand on this whole Bretton Woods, the new Bretton Woods? The dollar is going to be replaced as a global reserve currency. You know, obviously, if it happens, it's not going to happen overnight. Everyone knows that. But are you you know how long do you think this whole this whole little charade, the, the dollar charade, lasts? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, there, Michael Borda wrote a, a paper on the, the gold pool uh, going back about four or five years ago. And uh, the London gold pool was operated until March of uh, March 15th of 1968. And gold didn't re- really revalue until uh, August of 71. So you had a little over a three-year period where the policy had changed, but then you didn't really have the revaluation that you would have expected from the changing underlying policy and fundamentals right away. It, it was, a, I think, a long three years. So I think we're kind of in that in that moment right now where the world's changed, the policies have changed. Um, we can see the shift in the underlying fundamentals where you're going to have structurally higher inflation. You're going to move towards trading blocks, friendshoring, deglobalization. So you no longer have that massive disinflationary force that we've had for the last decade plus. Um, and you overlay that on very, very high levels of indebtedness and, and high levels of in terms of equity valuations. And I think you have a real recipe for a lot of financial stress. Um, and people, I think at this juncture should be really changing how they're thinking about their investment portfolio and investing differently than they would have over the last decade. Um, but my sense is it's still early and that hasn't really sunk in. And we're seeing that in terms of the valuations of whether it's gold, gold miners, uh, EMP companies, you're not really seeing an appetite for those assets that you would expect given the changing underlying fundamentals. Yes. Uh, so, Sean, it sounds like you're open to the idea of secular inflation, that this inflation, high inflation we have could be here to stay. If that is true, Sean, do you, do you, is that compatible with the previous scenario you laid out where the Federal Reserve backs off because asset prices have collapsed? I mean, if inflation is still at 8% and the S&P 500 has sold off 35%, where, where do you think the Fed goes there? Yeah, so I suspect they continue to raise rates. Do they get to you know positive real rates? I suspect not. Um, and look, monetary policy is political. So you had, you know, Lael Brainerd was uh, the champion of the change in the Fed's monetary framework going back into the summer of 2020, um, you know, where we moved the 2% cap on their inflation target to a 2% average over time. And then the idea that as we experience higher inflation rates on the back of that, we still go ahead and confirm her for vice chair is telling you kind of where the politics are, which is that you have kind of bipartisan support for easy money. And you've had that really since I think the confirmation of Janet Yellen in 2013 as Fed chair, where you had Senator Corker and others basically round up almost half of the Republicans to go along with her nomination. And for the last nine years, there hasn't really been a party that's championed sound money. And so the politicking in the Fed has allowed basically the easy money advocates to to gain ascendancy and really control of the institution. And I think you're going to see that in the monetary policy, kind of regardless of where the rhetoric is, that's really who you have in charge of of the Fed. And uh, so we're going to see, I think, looser for longer and never really getting close to that line in terms of positive real rates. Sean, two questions. Now, what have you made of the price action of gold, let's say over the past two and a half years, where briefly sold off during March 2020, you know, exploded higher into the summer of 2020. And since then, it's sort of stagnated down, uh, but it has had some renewed strength this year. Uh, and you know, does do you think that that price action confirms, supports, does not support, or is neutral on the idea that gold is an inflation hedge? 
Well, we no longer get the question as to whether or not, you know, you know, Bitcoin is, is just a better version of gold. So those have obviously disentangled. Um, it seems like gold is not correlated with risk assets. Uh, so it's flattish this year. Uh, so you're seeing a real good store of value there. Uh, in terms of the flight to gold that you would have hoped, that I would have hoped that we would have seen in this kind of environment, I go back to that kind of end of the London gold pool, you know, metaphor. So we're we're through March 15th, 68, but we're not to, to August 71 yet. And so the fundamentals have changed, but really the market hasn't taken advantage of that yet. Okay. And so what, what's your outlook on, on gold going forward? Oh, I think it'll go higher. I think, um, I think at some point um, the dollar will struggle with, you know, negative real rates. Um, I think gold will look better in relationship to uh, the developed market fiat currencies. Um, I think it'll look better as a store of value. I think it'll look better given the level of indebtedness of the uh, of the developed world and the monetary policy that has to be pursued in the developed world because of that level of indebtedness. Uh, and I think it'll get mainstreamed. So I would guess higher prices. And what would you say are the main catalysts you think for the the sort of bullish future of gold that that you that you envision? Um, you know, continuing rates of inflation that are you know north of two percent, uh, a lack of ability or appetite on the part of central banks to bring that inflation out of the system. Uh, couple that with high levels of indebtedness. Uh, questions about the sustainability of that, of those high and rising levels of indebtedness, a lack of appetite on the part of certainly here in the United States, uh, both parties to control the deficits. You know, that's all a recipe for that's monetary and fiscal dysfunction uh, overlaid on one another in a way that we haven't really begun to solve. And if you look at sort of the periods of explosive price action in gold, whether it's, you know, the entire decade of the 1970s or... That, that month from April to August of, of 2020, and of, of course, you know, 2000 to 2007, 2009, 2011 or 2012, uh, what, what is it, you know, about those periods that make it such a favorable and hospitable environment for gold to just like explode higher? I think, you know, the gold does well um, when the status quo is threatened in some way, right? So, uh if you can make 20% a year owning the S&P or the NASDAQ, uh, if the Fed can you know, pick the interest rate that it wants the 10-year to trade at and then set that price, and if that whole financial architecture is really going to be unthreatened and unquestioned, then why own gold, right? So, um, And to the extent that you start to call some of that status quo into question, at the end of the day, you don't need people to really you know, sell their stocks and bonds to buy gold, you just need one or 2% of the stocks and bonds to be sold to go into the gold market. So you're talking about um, an asset class that in its totality is 13, 14 trillion dollars, but it's modest in relationship to the other financial assets. And then it's unique in that it is the, it's the asset that is no one else's liability. Um, I think the best reveal in terms of what's going on in the gold market is the persistent central bank purchases of gold. So going into 2008, central banks had continued to divest from gold. Over the last 14 years, they've been persistent buyers of gold, and they remain the single largest buyer of gold in the market today. So the idea that the makers of fiat uh, currency are the biggest buyers of gold should tell you something about the internal dynamics of that market and the uh, attractiveness of that asset. Yes, the the peg to gold, the, the, the gold standard is over. However... The fiat, as you said, the fiat, they want to have a little gold in, in their <laughs> in their in their coffers. Sean, I want to ask you how pivotal. So, so the Russian ruble was uh, it, it had an incredible devaluation as the Western financial world uh, sanctioned it, tra- tried to cut it off, um, and the ruble weakened enormously. It has since revalued to levels that were stronger than before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. I know that the Russian Central Bank has done a lot of things. You know, they, they're very active. One of those uh, measures they embarked upon was to peg gold to, to, a, to a ruble and sort of buy a certain level of gold at a certain price, implying that while they were doing it, there was kind of like a floor for the price of gold. How, you know, gold historically has been used as a means to sta- stabilize fiat currency. 
How pivotal was that action, do you think, in sort of restoring the value of the ruble? Uh, well, let me say, first, we're not invested in Russia. I think there's a really important moral reasons not to invest in Russia so long as, you know, Russia's conducting its invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, yeah, in terms of forcing people to buy rubles versus their uh, the Russian Central Bank's decision to um, stipulate a, uh, a, a purchase price for gold in rubles, um, I can't tell you which is more influential in terms of the rubles appreciation uh, for the year to date. Um, I think the bigger issue is the weaponization of the dollar. And so if you go back four or five years, so when um, when we were threatening Turkey uh, because of the imprisonment of, of, of Pastor Brunson uh, with torching their economy and depriving them of swap lines and, and uh, targeting the lira for depreciation. So that was a not just a, a weaponization of the dollar vis-a-vis um, -vis a, a member of NATO, but also doing that with public statements from Secretary Mnuchin, then the, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, as a way to attack Erdogan, I thought the policy wasn't, um, it wasn't in the long-term interest of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. It was a little too aggressive. And so I think we're seeing countries deciding that they don't necessarily want to be um, in the situation Turkey found itself in 2018. Um, and certainly now the uh, freezing and expropriation of Russia's reserves takes that to another level. I think long term, I think that's going to be a negative for the dollar's reserve currency status. So we talked about the fundamentals of gold, the metal, the assets. I, going Later on in our conversation, I'm going to ask you about your investments in junior gold miners, what you look for, the green flags you look for, the red flags you look for, what, what you see in the space. But first, I want to ask you about energy, oil, and gas. Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero-taker fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at Bit.com. That's Bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at bit.com and tell them I sent you. I know you made some investments in uh, ENP exploration and production companies in early uh, 2020, you know, uh, when there was a huge yep. sell-off in the market, but particularly in, in those uh, you know, beleaguered energy stocks. What was it that sort of made you want to take on what at the time seemed very, like a very, very, very risky investment? Well, I think, um, you know, the oil production that the world needed wasn't sustainable with an oil price of less than $70. And so we'd seen in the years prior to 2020 that oil could go to 20 bucks in, in, uh, or 26 bucks at the lows uh, in, the, in the previous cycle. And in 2020, we saw futures go negative, obviously. So uh, enormous amount of volatility. And then on top of that, natural gas, even more volatile. For a number of years, we had uh, assets in the Western Sedimentary Basin in Canada that were basically getting very close to zero or only a dollar per MCF on their on their natural gas. Uh, sorry, what do you say when you say dollar per MCF? What do you mean? Sorry. So a, a dollar per thousand cubic feet of gas. It'd be like the um, it's like the common metric by which gas is sold here in the United States, whereas in Europe they sell it on an energy equivalent basis. But it's oh. basically the it'd be like if I'm telling you oils at uh, $100 a barrel. Uh, thousand cubic feet would be the equivalent metric in gas that people would use as the for the benchmark price. Okay, right. And so we say a, a dollar, that's the price that it cost them to make or that's the price they got to sell it? So in the Western Sedimentary Basin, you had at some of the terminals, you had problems getting the gas out because of the pipeline capacity. And so in some cases, they could sell the gas for basically nothing. In some cases, they'd get a, a dollar or two per MCF. Um, right now, you have uh, natural gas at Henry Hub in the United States trading between $7 and $8. So there's been a, a big revaluation in terms of spot pricing, in part because uh, you had really much better capital discipline on the part of the EMP companies here in the United States in terms of not over-investing and not investing in oil and gas that exceeded their ability to uh, produce it or the market to absorb it. And in oil, that's a a global market in gas that can be a very regional market. And so your ability to achieve a good price for your natural gas depends upon the responsible investment of companies in a particular geography in a way that's not true uh, in most cases for oil. Uh, 
in, in 2020, you had unsustainably low prices for oil and gas. You had companies were being valued on the idea that they weren't ever going to achieve a sustainable price for their oil and gas reserves. And so even companies with premium assets, top quartile assets in terms of their cost or their quality or the life of the assets were being valued as if though they had basically no terminal value or were uh, very marginal companies. And that's just not true. And so we were able to buy some of those companies at these very distressed prices back in 2020. And uh, you know, over the last two years, we've seen a nice revaluation of those companies. Definitely a very nice revaluation. But Sean, you've had, it was a, it was quite a journey. You know, if you bought Apple or Facebook or Microsoft uh, in the depths of, you know, March 23rd, it was pretty much up every day. It was straight green. But with energy, I mean, just looking at like an ETF, you know, it, it revalued up to September, but then you had another pretty brutal sell-off in the late summer, early fall of 2020. What was that like? And then how did that sort of set the stage for the epic bull run that we've been on since then? Um, well, everything was a lot easier than the lows in April of 2020. So, um, uh, you know, with the, the, the kind of the zeitgeist of the ESG movement and the idea that um, we were going to decarbonize and it was going to be painless and that these were assets that were going to be worthless, not in 30 years, but in five or 10 years, um, and that they were just never really going to recover. By the fall or the late summer of 2020, you'd really gotten to a point where that, that clearly wasn't the case, right? Oil prices weren't going to be sustainably negative. You're going to have to move back to some, some reasonable long-term price for oil and gas. And we also started to see some M&A. So in one of the two companies that we were invested in in Western Canada bought a 20% position in another company there uh, that was particularly undervalued, kind of putting a floor under the price. So there started to be some um, M&A activity, corporate activity in the space that started to indicate that you were really well beyond the bottom by the fall of 2020. And then the huge bull run that started from November and pretty much has been, you know, uh, ongoing. Uh, what, to what have you attributed that? And have you been, you know, have you been adding positions? Have you been, have you been, you know, scared or nervous by how well it's been working? Some, you know, if, if that you've ever happened. <laughs> yeah. So the, so the valuations are really pretty overwhelming. So even today, um, you know, early May, uh, 2022, um, our companies have free cash flow yields north of 20% at $100 oil. And sorry, what is the free cash flow yield just for our audience? So free cash flow yields is the. Uh, actual cash money that you can take out of the business while you reinvest back into the business to sustain production. So you're neither growing nor shrinking the underlying business. Um, you're sustaining it. And at the same time, this is the amount of cash that you can take out. So uh, it's kind of like an earnings proxy, but the way tax works in the EMP uh, business, you, you tend to use a different metric than actual earnings. Um, so on an EV, uh, enterprise value to debt adjusted cash flow, you're talking about these companies trading on half of their historic uh, valuation. So they trade on about three times EV DACF versus historical multiples of five and a half to six and a half, something like that. So you're still at these very compressed multiples because the market simply doesn't believe that spot pricing in oil um, or even, even, even significantly lower, but um, four to five dollar gas pricing is lower than spot pricing and gas is sustainable. And so you're able to buy these companies at incredibly attractive multiples. And so we really haven't had the um, any kind of concern about the run in these companies so far because the valuations have all been really supportive of uh, the prices that we're, we own these companies at today. I think they could, you know, I think they could easily double from here still. Um, and the market still remains, I think, unduly pessimistic about the future price of oil and gas. So if you take oil prices out and you go out four years, you're still in the low 70s in terms of where WTI is trading. And that just, I think, doesn't reconcile with where the supply demand fundamentals are in the, energy, in, in, in the industry. So you, there's sort of at least four big tailwinds at the back of the, the energy investor since October, November of 2020. Number one, uh, Economic growth, which was projected to be very low or negative, exploded higher. Uh, as such, natural gas and price of oil went higher. Also, you had inflation, which makes sort of short duration cash flows more attractive and technology long duration and long duration bonds less attractive. So you had inflows into there. 
um, you you had the ESG, you had supply being very low because EVA is ESG under investment, and that that's four. And then uh, five, I might also add, um, yeah, I, I guess that's four. <laughs> So I, the, uh, you know, the biggest factors I'd add to that would there's just been a real sea change in terms of the way uh, EMP companies are allocating capital. So in the previous cycle, right, they were not just spending the cash flow they had; they were borrowing money to invest in these what they saw as high return wells on the idea that oil prices were going to be sustainably north of seventy dollars. You now have. Um, an industry that wants to do deals based on $55 oil and an industry that has spent years promising their shareholders that they're going to return rather than reinvest capital. And so the amount of money they're putting in the ground to, to expand production is much more modest than it has been historically. And there has been now years of underinvestment. And so that all is a recipe for significantly higher prices. You overlay on that the say, more complicated relationship we now have with OPEC and OPEC's both desire and ability to produce significantly more oil as they take market share as we've suppressed non-OPEC production. Um, these two factors should lead to higher oil and gas prices structurally for a long period of time, and you should be getting a higher multiple on those cash flows because they're more predictable than what you would have gotten 10 years ago, but the opposite's the case, right? You're, 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 you're paying a lower multiple for, for, for better free cash flow multi, uh, uh, returns than you um, uh, than you would have going back seven or eight years. How much is so? You, you say that oil companies are not investing in production; they're investing in dividends, buying back shares. Um, how much is do you think oil production is going to rise over the coming years, and how might that compare to a period like 2013, 2014, like the the shale revolution when companies were spending money hand over fist to increase production? Global market. So you're talking about in the case of oil, you know, how many million millions of barrels a day are you going to add uh, in the coming years? Uh, demand uh, pre-crisis had been growing at more than a, a million barrels a day and supply had been keeping up with that. Um, it's an incredibly inelastic market. So you only need a very small difference between supply and demand to really move the price uh, uh, significant amounts. So I think the 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 where the market's getting it most wrong is this idea that demand's going to start to moderate and demand's going to peak and therefore we shouldn't be investing in incremental supply. I think we could see years of growing uh, oil demand. Um, so we're at 100 million barrels a day roughly today. Um, I think that could get to you know 105 plus out by the end of the decade. Uh, and I don't think we have the investment in place to to support that. And then natural gas. I think is an even clearer case where you're going to have a, a natural gas market that's globalizing. And by all accounts, that market's going to be growing for decades, not just for the balance of this decade. So um, I think there's a really good long-term investment opportunity here. And you just don't have the market psychology that you have depleting assets that have no terminal value is just not, I don't think, particularly compatible with the actually under, underlying reality. Right. Terminal value is what it's sort of valued at the end. And it had been valued so that, you know, in 10 years, not going to be burning this natural gas because of electrification and green energy. Uh, why do you think that's wrong? Why do you think we will be burning natural gas in 10 years? Well, I, even if you look at the IEA um, estimates uh, for natural gas. So natural gas is, you know, I guess now it's green and now it's a transition fuel. Uh you know, it's going to need to displace a lot of coal uh, over the coming decades. So natural gas production and consumption is going to grow globally by everybody's account uh, for, for uh, you know, more than two decades. In terms of oil, that's where it was more political. And if you look at, say, the OPEX report versus the uh, uh, IEA's report in terms of uh, consumption out towards the latter half of this decade, it's a, you know, it's a big difference of opinion in terms of what consumption is going to be, especially what consumption in emerging markets is going to be. And I just don't see the kind of demand reduction and destruction that the IEA is hoping for. If you take a country like Nigeria, for example, where you have about half the population doesn't have access to grid electricity, they have very substantial hydrocarbon uh, reserves. The idea that they're not going to use the oil and gas that they have to electrify Nigeria because we have a 
uh, desire to decarbonize doesn't strike me as kind of a, a, a likely outcome. I think it's much more likely they exploit their reserves and they increase their oil and gas consumption in the coming years and decades. And I think that's going to be true for much of emerging markets, even as uh, oil and gas consumption uh, moderates here in the developed world. Okay. I think it's a good transition to ESG, environmental, uh, societal, and and governance, uh, activist investing, seeking to decarbonize and sort of raise the cost of capital, if you will, on uh, fossil fuel companies. Can you describe the effect that ESG investing has had on the energy markets over the past 10 years? And are you seeing a sea change now, uh, given that the price of fossil fuels has exploded higher and arguably there's not enough supply? Yeah, so I think the, you know, kind of the engine number one and the uh, CalPERS and, and the passive investors victory over ExxonMobil, uh, I think that was probably the, the high watermark of the ESG movement, the idea that they could get three directors to decarbonize um, a super major over even a long period of time. Um, maybe they looked okay at the time. I think uh, with higher energy prices, it obviously looks more costly as a strategy. But I think more importantly, after you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that looks maybe geopolitically kind of dumb. Do we really want to transfer market share to OPEC in Russia? And the answer is no. So you're seeing uh, behind the scenes, you're really seeing a big change there in terms of, I think, uh, the behavior in the ESG movement that hasn't really trickled down to the companies, but I think uh, I think something like what we saw in 2021 there at ExxonMobil was probably the high watermark of the ESG movement when it came to decarbonization. And were you telling me prior that you know one of the companies you invested in actually is buying projects from the majors? Yeah, so there's. Um, so investors didn't want to own EMP companies, and to the extent they wanted to own EMP companies, they wanted to own large liquid EMP companies with assets in the developed world or in North America. And so you had, for economic reasons, for investor uh, relations reasons, and for environmental reasons, you've had some of the uh, international oil companies selling off assets in emerging markets. Uh, in some cases, like in the case of like Petrobras, that was in part motivated by their own balance sheet stress, where they sold a number of on and offshore assets in uh, Brazil at very attractive prices to some smaller, say, billion to $2 billion companies. Uh, in the case of West Africa, you've had ExxonMobil, amongst others, selling in assets at very low, we're talking about you know, two times free cash flow kind of multiples because they don't want to be there. Um, uh, it's not just complicated from uh, the E and ESG, kind of the environmental. It's also socially very complicated. Uh, and they've chose to exit some of those assets, I think, very attractive prices. And how high does the price of oil or natural gas have to go before fossil fuel companies invest back in production? And also, Sean, is it a factor of where on the curve the price is. Because if you see a headline, oh my God, oil is at $170. Yes, but ExxonMobil is not going to realize that price if the five-year future price is still at $100. And that's what they're going to have to sell to hedge. So is it, you know, is there, does the back end of the curve have to, to go up for the uh, companies to, to invest? Uh, so yes. Uh, so they're not going to, so the companies aren't using anything like spot to uh, dictate their uh, investment practices. Um, we just met with a company earlier this week uh, in London, a large uh, intermediate, um, and they're using 55 to $60 for their budgeting purposes, to give you a sense. And that's with, you know, spot well above 100 bucks, And you're still north of that, even if you go out five years in the futures, futures market, uh, you're north of $70. So, um, so yeah, they're not using these prices in the natural gas market. Um, Unlike oil, where in oil, the price, the farther you go out, the lower the price, natural gas dips. So if spot prices are $7 to $8, you'll dip down to 4 bucks going out a couple of years, but then you start to rise. Um, mm. So, I, 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 again, I still see a lot of conservatism in terms of the budgeting of these uh, companies. In addition to the conservatism about their future price, uh, the future price they're going to receive for oil and gas, you have a default setting, which is we're going to return capital to to shareholders, and you still see the market punishing companies for increasing capex and trying to ramp production. So, 
it's not just a preference on the part of uh, the management, it remains a preference on the part of shareholders. Eventually that'll change, eventually we'll get a cycle where we're gonna have markets uh, incentivize uh, boards and C-suites to invest in growing production, but we're just not there yet. Before we move on to gold, I just wanna make clear, Sean, that your investments uh, in energy Again, they're mostly, they're not the majors. They're not Chevron, Exxon. They're mostly companies that, you know, our viewers probably haven't heard of. I, I haven't haven't heard of them. And they're, they're pretty small in, in market cap. Uh, would that be correct? Yeah, so they're one to $10 billion companies. Um, so for us, that's uh, plenty large and liquid. But yes, they're definitely not the, the super majors. Um, right, definitely. They're not, they're not tiny. They're not like, you know. Uh, yeah, they're... They're not marginal companies, but but it's it's not a um, you know, and a lot of them have actually some very some of the assets they picked up from the the super majors are world class assets, and in some cases they're actually in a joint venture structure with BP or you know uh, one of the world's largest oil companies, and so you have the quality of asset you have management in many cases came from some of the super majors, and so you have a, a, from a quality perspective and a management perspective you have you're checking a, a lot of what you want in terms of expertise and uh, governance, uh, but you're just paying a, we're paying a lower multiple uh, for both the reserves and the cash flow and the free cash flow by buying some of the smaller companies. Right. And you're paying a lower multiple because the, the market is assigning a higher sort of risk premium, if you will. Sean, I want to merge our conversations together. We started, we talked about the price of gold. Then we talked about investing in uh, you know, junior energy companies, non-major energy companies, now let's let's blend them together. Talk about your investments in junior gold miners. I want to say why. Uh, first of all, what is a junior gold miner, and why invest in a junior miner as opposed to a senior miner? So, junior gold miners are just smaller uh, gold mining companies. So, uh, where you have like the GDX would be the index of the larger gold mining companies. The average market cap there is north of twenty billion dollars, whereas the GDXJ would be um, smaller gold miners, we were talking about the average market cap there being about $3 billion. So uh, most of what we're doing is in, actually it's in the sub $3 billion range. So the sweet spot for us would be like the you know, one to five, one to six uh, billion dollar market cap. Okay. And uh, what is the opportunity you see in the juniors that you don't see in the seniors? And the opportunities, but also talk about the risks too. So uh, for the juniors, you tend to have a handful of assets, maybe one or two assets in many cases, uh, certainly as you get towards a billion dollars. Whereas for the the majors in the or the seniors in the in the gold mining space, you'll have a more diversified portfolio. So investors that haven't visited the assets don't really want to make a decision about the value of a particular asset or the politics of a particular geography. They're going to be more comfortable in one of the largest companies because they'll have five plus operating assets. And so they have diversification in that company structure, whereas we really add a lot of value by making an assessment about a particular asset. So we'll go, we'll go visit the asset. We, we know the geology, we know the, the economics of that asset. We understand the local community issues. We understand the, the regional politics and we can buy that asset at a big discount to NAV. Whereas if you buy the aggregate of those assets in a senior, you're paying a premium to NAV. It seems to me, I, I alluded to this earlier, that the you know doing your homework and investing it always pays off. But there's a degree, there's a question of how much it pays off. Like if someone invests in stocks that are in the S and P 500 and they listen to the earnings calls, they read the 10Ks, they get the phone number of the analyst, they talk to them, you know, they they might outperform the S and P 500, but a lot of it is luck. But it seems that. Someone who's actually visiting the gold mines knows how to, you know, knows the engineering, has a proper team for evaluating that stuff. That is, you know, that's probably going to be a better strategy than investing in the basket of of uh, the GDX or the GDXJ. And uh, can you, can, can you, uh, you know, because maybe we can put a chart up of just comparing the price of gold over the past ten years to the GDX or the GDXJ. How, you know, to what do you explain uh, the, you know? underperformance in the case of GDX and the drastic underperformance of GDXJ. Yeah, so there's there's just not a lot of, so one you've had over the last 12 years, you've had a big derating of, of both the seniors and the juniors in terms of where the, the juniors used to trade it closer to net asset value and the seniors at two times net asset value. Uh, the juniors are now trading at meaningful discounts in many cases 
40, 50% discount to net asset value, and the seniors are trading at just a slight premium to net asset value. So you've had a big derating. Um, and then the, the, the combination of factors that you face when you're investing in gold mines are, uh, have been unattractive to a lot of investors. So gold hasn't uh, moved sufficiently with inflation. Uh, you have the concern that gold's going to go sideways into the future as capital costs for mines go up a lot and operating costs start to escalate. So you have operating costs going up in the high single digits, capital costs going up north of that, in some cases close to 20%. And so if gold prices don't start to rise, you have that squeezing of those margins. Uh, and if this is a cyclical peak in the industry, you're only generating high single digit returns on equity. It's just not sufficient for generalist investors to want to get interested. How many you know junior gold miners would you say are profitable at the current price? Well, what are the current what is what is the current price of gold? I don't know. I'm I'm ashamed to say. So eighteen fifty is the is the price of gold. Eighteen fifty. Okay. How many you know your typical junior gold miner is that profitable at eighteen fifty? Uh, and what about your senior gold miner? Uh, is your typical senior miner profitable at eighteen fifty? And then also, what about companies that aren't producing sort of uh, greenfield projects? So, so yeah, the producers are profitable today generally. So you have uh, all in sustaining cash, uh, uh, costs for the sector today is going to be uh, somewhere around $1,100. So you have a margin versus 1850 uh, today that producers are generating. And that's true for uh, the juniors as well as the seniors. The issue is that if that gold price goes sideways and those uh, sustaining costs, all in sustaining costs start to escalate, those margins get squeezed, and it's a very capital intensive business. And so the IRRs on the projects, even if they're still slightly free cash flow positive, are pretty marginal, and it's not clear if they were risk all the, uh, worth all the, the, the effort and risk of investing. Uh, in terms of the non-producers, um, there's maybe two big categories of those. One's the explorcos, which are going around sticking holes in the ground looking for gold. We're not invested in those companies. But uh, if you talk, why, why is that, Sean? Uh, it's a very unpredictable bad business. It's hard to gold scarce, uh, sticking holes in the ground looking for it is a high risk activity. Somebody else can do that. It's uh, it tends to be yeah. that's more of a kind of a lottery strategy. Um, there's also there's kind of a trust. There's a trust level. You know, if I, if I come to you and I say, hey, I found gold, you know, you, you, do you trust me? Uh, well, maybe you, um, but, <laughs> okay. um, you know, uh, it's just the reality. The problem is even if you find gold, is it economic, right? Is there enough of it? Uh, what are the grades? What's the nature? What's the, what's the geology? What's the metallurgy? What's the geometry of the ore body? Is it mineable? Is it actually worth something? And so, um, but even if you're, if you're buying, investing in economic uh, reserves in the ground that just where their mine's not built, those companies tend to be very, uh, very, very, very uh, poorly valued, inefficiently valued, and lowly valued today. Um, the main thing investors are looking for there is an asset that's large enough to be taken out at a premium by a major, because the the timeline and economics of actually building that mine and developing that asset in most cases aren't attractive to people that have you know less than a four or five year time horizon from an investment perspective. Um, and then the population of assets is actually large enough to attract the attention of a, a large company where you have a willing buyer. And then if you have a willing seller on the part of the junior mining management and board, that's tends to be relatively rare. Um, so uh, we have we have some of those companies that are have, have economic assets, economic reserves, but are very undervalued. But the vast majority of our portfolio is in uh, producing companies. Okay. So again, not talking about your fund at all, but let's say there's an active gold investor and she invests in companies uh, that are in the GDXJ and she manages to have uh, you know solid returns. What the, the let's say uh, she invests in ten percent. The ninety percent that she didn't invest in, the problem ones. What is the problem with them that is sort of dragging the GDXJ down? You know, is it there? There, uh, there's maybe some governance problems. Uh, is it that the ore isn't right? Is it the costs are eating it up? What is what are sort of the problems that is is to drag has dragged the GDXJ down? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I mean, so in the GDXJ, you've got it's a hundred companies. Average market cap is about three billion dollars. Most of those companies are producing. So the big issue you have right now, from a headline perspective, is you have capital cost overruns, uh, uncertainty in terms of future capital cost overruns. Uh, you have operating cost increases. 
so some of the procurement budgets that were stable for part of uh, 2021 now have really started to escalate into 2022. Um, I would say those are the number one issues you're facing in that sector. Um, then you have all sorts of, you have governance problems where you have boards that don't own enough stock. Um, you have boards that have the motivation to uh, make their companies larger uh, rather than generate value on a per share basis. Uh, so navigating a lot of those governance issues is a big part of, of what I think, what we do, what investors should do in the space. Uh, and then on top of that, you have you have different geographies where you have threats of taxation. So Chile is a good example right now where companies are going to have, if the constitutional uh, rewrite goes through, they may have their water rights taken away. And then you have potential tax increases on top of that. You go through the list of everything that could go wrong. Uh, and it's really pretty substantial. Uh, so unless you start to get higher gold prices, uh, I think that population of companies doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think given the sideways performance of gold in this kind of environment, you now have a fair amount of skepticism about you know when and if gold's actually going to going to perform to to justify this kind of uh, even today's valuations and the kind of uh, investment activity you're seeing in the space. Right, and I should say a lot of the senior gold miners located in Australia, in you know I guess some in some in Europe, a lot in the United States, a lot in Canada. But you know the bulk of the junior miners, they typically tend to be in emerging markets, frontier markets. So a lot are in South America, some some in Africa. Uh, you said you said South America. What do you think about this sort of jurisdictional risk, and how are you, tr you know, trying to to avoid it and seek jurisdictions that are favorable to mining? So Latin America has been kind of a disaster area for uh, certainly the last five years. Um, so not just you've had the elections in in Chile and in Peru um, that have been very negative for the mining uh, business and made it very challenging to. Uh, invest in new mines there. Uh, Argentina has been a problem for a long time. Um, Mexico under AMLO has been incredibly difficult. We have companies that have built mines there but haven't been able to connect them to the grid, uh, to power them, to turn them on, and just kind of uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies. Then you overlay on all of that. Latin America was particularly hit by uh, the coronavirus, and you had policies in a number of countries where you had every worker that tested positive took a week plus off. And so you had inefficiencies, costs associated with coronavirus overlaid on top of uh, tough politics. And then you overlay on top of that, the NGO activity that you have in Latin America, a lot of which is foreign financed. And so Latin America is kind of the one jurisdiction where we see kind of writ large, where you could see built assets that don't have really any environmental or structural problem actually get shut down. So we have a mine in Southern Guatemala uh, that was built in, in production five years ago that has been um, on care and maintenance for five years because they have a, a local social problem they can't deal with. So um, that's been a really difficult uh, continent to be invested in the last four or five years. And then the counterpart to that would be something like West Africa, where you have really for the better part of a decade, you just have mines coming on time on budget. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, but uh, there's been a lot of value created in that in that uh, geography as opposed to Latin America over that period of time. Sean, how do you identify where the risk is? Because you know, I've I've seen mining CEOs on TV, I've seen interviews with them, and I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but they never say, "Oh yeah, we're we're actually have a huge jurisdictional risk." Or they're like, "No, we've got a world class project. We're free cash flow of this of this. Uh, we're right connected to the grid. Water. We've got all these advantages. Uh, blah 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 blah." You know, if I was, I could never do your job, Sean, because I'm I'm a believer. You know, I'd be <laughs> like, "Yeah, yeah." So how how do you you know separate the wheat from the chaff and see which CEOs are telling the truth and you know the paperwork backs it up and which are maybe not so much. Well, I think so. The the kind of the end of your question there gives you the answer is a lot is the people and you want to find the people that um, are invested alongside of you. Right. They own uh, they own the shares as well and that they have a track record of creating value and um, behaving well. Right. So uh, somebody has a 20 year track record of not creating value and uh, working against the interest of shareholders. You know, you, I would hope he changes his behavior, but I'm not going to invest on that basis. So you really want to find uh, 
the right boards and the right C-suites to partner with. Um, I think that's kind of the probably the number one uh, the number one factor. And then uh, having having additional sources of information within within country are really important. I remember there's a company that uh, Centera that had a I went to their original listing where they have an asset in the Kyrgyz Republic and there were like 50 people in the room. And I was like, gosh, I know a lot about, I just don't know anything about the Kyrgyz Republic. Tell me about what this is like, you know, as a uh, investment geography. And sure enough, they have a, a lady in the back pop up. She's dressed in uh, the local local costume. And she's like, you know, look, we're a thriving democracy. It's going to be fantastic investing there. And I don't know, 15 years later, they expropriate the asset. It turns out it, turns out it wasn't a great place to invest. Um, so I think you just have to have... Uh, you know, some experience and separate sources of information in these countries. So you actually know what's what's going on, because, as you say, the companies themselves aren't often in the business of being as honest as they should be about the uh, local issues that they encounter. Mm. And does an asset have a, a uh, lower likelihood of getting expropriated if it's majority owned by people in that country? For, for example, like if a if it's uh, listed on an African stock exchange and it's it's owned by a lot of people there, they're not going to, you know, these the, the sort of, uh, you know, elite uh, miners, they're not going to let, let their, their friends and government expropriate that, right? But if it's owned majorly by Canadians, they'll be like, yeah, we're, we're expropriating this. So the assets tend not to get expropriated. That's not really, so that's kind of the, I guess, the quick way to talk about some kind of impairment of the asset. Um they tend to get frozen. It tends not to be um, actually national policy. The issues tend to be the local community issues tend to be the ones that are the most unworkable or insoluble. Um, the governments, the national governments tend to be interested in doing a deal. Uh, and there's pretty good parameters in terms of what the take are, whether they're taking 40% or 50%. You know, there's not, there's a range, but it's not an infinitely large range. And then every government understands that they can't actually operate a mine. It's not like um, oil and gas asset. There's no real possibility, I think, for rational people to believe that a government can actually operate a mine. And so there you're just really negotiating where you are in the 40, 50% government take uh, when you're talking about uh, at a countrywide issue. When you go to the community issues, you'll have maybe two or three of the local communities are getting economic returns from the asset, but one's not. Maybe you have uh, indigenous issues or a, a tribal issue where people just feel like they're not really participating in the returns of that asset. And then they're not interested in changing the economics slightly. They're op interested in stopping that asset from going into production. Uh, and so that's where you really get the, you can lose an asset uh, in my experience. And what what would a situation be like where, you know, uh, indigenous populations raise an issue and the the miners can meet that issue and everyone can benefit versus uh, something where it just they, they, they end up shutting down the mine? Uh, you know, so in terms of uh, so there's two sources of money for a lot of these communities. One source of money is the mine. The other source of money is foreign anti-mining money. And so uh, depends about yeah. What is this NGO? Who, who's funding it? Is it the United States? Is it Europe? Where's the money coming from? Yeah, so there's, it's U.S. and European money. And the U.S. and European money is generally not there to make sure that the mining is done to best practices. The U.S. and European money is usually there to prevent the mining from happening. And so, um, yeah, so those negotiations tend not to be uh, fruitful. Um, and a lot of the court systems can be very politicized. And so you can get stuck in a local court system where uh, really there's the timeline to get out of that is, uh, you know, way beyond our investment timeline. So we were invested in a company in uh, the western part of Mexico where their mine permit has been declared unconstitutional. Um, we had a, um, an asset in, in Peru uh, where was protested by a local indigenous community and their their license was revoked prior to a presidential election. Uh, we have the asset in Guatemala. Maybe that's the kind of most glaring one um, where a local tribe, the Shinka tribe, had claimed that this was a violation of a treaty level agreement that Guatemala had regarding indigenous peoples. And that's been 
in a five-year legal process, despite the president's support for that that mine, and despite that mine having really no technical issues, it's been five years. So, and I, I, I guess the point I would highlight to you is every single one of those examples I'm giving to you is in Latin America. So um, the opposite has generally been true in our experience in West Africa, uh, where if you you did a deal, you had a commercial deal, you were able to execute that on that, and you were able to basically navigate some of the local issues and uh, create the community benefits in terms of jobs and employment and economic development and the tax benefits for the government such that uh, you didn't really have um, a lot of unexpected issues uh, after you uh, decided to proceed with the investment in the project. How long do these mines last? You know, uh, and how, how long does it take before they their production curve tends to go down? And then how does the how do the markets value that as it's producing less and less gold every year? And then final question: How do you value that? So the the short answer is no two mines are alike, right, or the same, right? So there's a lot of variation uh, from asset to asset, and that's one of the things that makes mine investing so uh, complicated. Um, so sometimes mines will have uh, uh, a life. We had one in uh, Bulgaria that had a life of seven years. Uh, most of the mines we're invested in are going to have uh, lives beyond 10 years. Uh, mining companies generally want um, a life of mine beyond 10 years uh, from today. And if they see that 10-year production profile start to tail off, you're going to see boards and C-suites start to look at either expanding those assets, spending more money on exploration, or making acquisitions to fill in that production profile. So even if it would make sense Financially, to shrink production, you have uh, very few companies in the mining space that are ever going to do that. What does the global supply of gold look like? I know when it comes to oil, coal, natural gas, you know, it's pretty likely that uh, humanity is going to stop using them before they, we fully run out of them. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's the way, the way it seems. Whereas like gold, you know, never going to run out of gold, but it's just going to be in such small quantities that it's going to cost so much to get it out of the ground. Like how, you know, how much... How slim are the pickings now compared to 50 years ago? And you know, in maybe 20 years, are, how much more slim are the pickings going to be than, than now? So, so gold's different than, I mean, gold's money and has been used as a money historically because it's not really consumed. So unlike everything else that we produce, whether it's oil or even something like a monetary metal like silver, which is consumed uh, in a lot of industrial processes, um, you know, gold's not consumed. So if there's seven or eight million ounces of, of uh, a billion ounces of gold above ground, that's, you know, pretty close to a, you know, representation of what's ever been cumulatively produced in human history. Maybe a couple of people get buried with gold, but broadly speaking, the gold's not being uh, consumed either um, in industrial processes or individuals aren't destroying the gold that they have. So you're not going to run out of gold. Um, and then so mine supply is it varies a little, but it tends to be one to two percent of that uh, total stock of gold on, a, on an annual basis, and that's been broadly consistent uh, for most of the last hundred years. Okay. Um, well, well, Sean, we're, we're running a little longer the tooth. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I guess is there is there anything you want to uh, leave our audience with uh, before we go? Uh, I don't know. The world's changed, right? So the disinflationary tech stocks ever envi higher environment is, I think, in the in the rearview mirror, and I think investors um, probably should get smarter about uh, oil and gas and uh, gold mining uh, because I think there's still, uh, yeah, I think we got a long runway ahead of us still. Mm, wonderful, got you. All right, well, uh, Sean Filer, thanks so much. 